This is an I Should Be Writing sort of metacast. It'll be season 19, episode 28. Tomorrow is the I Should Be Writing 18th birthday. My podcast does not have a wish list, but I am accepting presents. And that is a segue. That's not just me being tacky. I was following a TikTok person. Um, great, now I can't remember his name. Like Chef Reactions, maybe? And it's a, chef, a professional chef who watches a lot of these weird, weird meal videos that people put out. Like, oh, let's just put a whole bunch of dry pasta and some Velveeta and some sauce and a bunch of really nasty stuff and then we'll bake it all up and eat it. There's a lot of those, apparently. And he gives his reaction. He's kind of deadpan and very foul-mouthed. And it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. But he said, recently, I don't, I, don't, I don't follow like every single thing he puts out, so I don't know if I'm missing some personal stuff, but I believe for personal reasons he left chefing. He left the restaurant biz and is now doing content creation full time. And people have said, how can I, I, I want to support you. How can I give you money? And he's like, I will never ask you for money. I want you to like and subscribe and spread the word and everything. And that, I know people who have done that. And it sounds noble. You know, it sounds like, no, I don't, I don't want you to give me money. The way you can support me are these other ways. But there's two problems with that. One is you can't guarantee they will support you in those ways. And two is when somebody wants to support you in a way that would benefit you, you make it as easy as possible. You can say, I feel awkward, but so many people were asking for my PayPal account. Here it is. I'm not asking you for money, but if you want to send me something, it will be appreciated. Something like that. Because you can't, in a perfect world, you can say, hey, everybody, watch my stream, download my podcast, give me a review when my book comes out, buy it, but don't do X. That other thing you want to do to support me, don't do it. And I've seen... A lot of disappointment from people who thought they kind of had a verbal agreement with their audience. And really, you're gonna, people are gonna do what they want to do if you make it possible for them, and then they'll even do it, they'll do it more if you make it easy. And what, what this has to do with writing is, you know, it's hard, especially especially now when you have um, a lot of people are trying to build a fiction career and then either because of disappointment in, in the traditional market or because it's just the, the way they want to go, they will go and do self-pub. So they're already entering that space probably with a sense of failure or chip on their shoulder. And so you're already feeling 
kind of like, wow, I really wish I could make a living doing this, but I'm not sure if I'm good enough. Imposter syndrome comes in too. You shouldn't pay me money. I actually, I once tried to solicit a story from a woman I went to grad school with, and she wanted to refuse the money because she did not think she was ready to be paid for fiction yet. She didn't think so. She didn't want the money. I mean, I, I, I don't even know. And if your goal is to make a living doing this, then you have to accept when people want to give you things. Because increasingly in today's creative world, the things you get from your audience are more nuanced than the price of a book. So if you're creating anything and people tell you, how can I support you? Or they say, can I send you some money? You say, yes, thanks. Because if you don't, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. You can't tell somebody to play by your charity rules when they're the ones offering the charity. I mean, you can, but there's no guarantee they'll play by your rules because they're just like, I got a five right here in my hand. Can I give it to you? Um, I mean, you know, the only time I don't want to... The only time I can think of where I've said I don't want to make money this way is when people, some authors like to carry their books to cons and sell them by hand, and that means they get a much larger cut of the price of the book, because they buy it from their publisher wholesale. The thing is, is that I, and sometimes you need the money, don't get me wrong, sometimes you need the money, and therefore that is a good use, but if I'm feeling comfortable, then I want people to buy the book from the publisher Whoever the publisher is, ebook, audiobook, not, I mean, you know, distributor, whoever, whoever the distributor, uh, distributor is. But I, because your vote may get me at, your, your purchase may get me only a dollar, but it's also a vote to tell my publisher to give me another book contract. So it's kind of playing the long game. You know, all those investment jerks? who are just, like, talking about how stupid people just, you know, why, if I give you $100 today, or I give you $200 in a year, why would you choose the $100? When there's $200 next year, I'm like, maybe they need the $100! So, yeah, I'm not putting anybody down who needs to make money by taking books to a con. But I would rather people buy from an official distribution service to help my future contracts. It can be hard if you're raised to bootstrap. Yes, kids are asleep. The time value of money. A future dollar is worth less than a present dollar. Economics fact. That's fair. But what about if you invest it? That's... I think that's the, the argument for investing, which is, you know, you could take your $100 now, or you could put your $100 in an investment and get more next week, next year. Yeah. I mean, if you had the luxury to invest, then do it. But if you can't afford to, then, you know, you take care of what you need to take care of. I mean, yeah, bad boots cost more than good boots. I think this is a Terry Pratchett thing. Bad boots cost more than good boots because you have to keep replacing them. But the thing is, do you have the money to buy the good boots right now? Yeah. I had some other things written down and they're in the other room. Um, 
It'll be interesting to see how I handle the next two months. I have um, a lot of writing to do. I have I have written a good amount. I have gotten my outline. I wrote a good outline. I'm pretty proud of the outline. I'm happy with it. And I think my... Uh, I think I can get it done. The problem there is that I do have five days at Disney... And I have, like, four days taking the kid back to school in those two months that I'm going to try to write. I am. We'll see. But I... One one thing different with this book is I've told myself I can, um... I'm comfortable writing non-linearly. Finally. Before I would just be like, I would try to write linearly and then just feel like I was being bad or, or rebellious if I was... I just want to write this scene down. Now I'm just like, if I'm thinking about the scene, I'm going to write the scene. I'll piece it together later. That's what Scrivener's good for, folks. If you're not on the Scrivener train, check it out. I'm not even associated or sponsored or affiliated. I just think that that's one of their best parts, which is you could put your scenes on individual little cards and move them around in the book. A little bit of news from me. I got a starter view from Library Journal, which was very exciting. And uh, she reads, I guess she reads.com listed uh, Chaos Terminal in their books they were looking forward to this fall. So very, very excited for that. I don't have a title for book three yet. I'm working on it. But I don't know. I'm not, I'm not too afraid right now because the couple of times I have been able to sit down and write, I've gotten a good amount done. And I'm going to try it after this again, even though uh, i got a baseball game in three hours. But, I don't know. It's going to be a big challenge, but I think I can do it. It's just one, one little bit at a time. I think Focus Mates is going to help me. Because I, um, it, it helps me get settled and, and at least get to my desk on time. And I don't want anybody to see me playing a game on my phone, so that, that's usually not up. Not something I worry about when there's accountability in the air. In the air? I can feel accountability in the air tonight. One thing was really funny, somebody found me on Focusmates and locked in... Um, they either, with Focusmates, they pair you with someone to co-work with, or if someone knows your... Put, has your link, they can, like, lock in a session with you. And I put my link in the show notes every time. If you want to work with me, that's fine. And then someone did. They locked me in, and I'm just like great and I got there and he's like I hope this isn't weird I just saw you on the thing I uh, saw you on the focus mates thing I'm like oh no it's not weird because I, I have my link on my site he didn't even find me through my site he found me on focus mates strangely enough also not affiliated or sponsored I focus mates just has helped me up I've been at it about a year now because I think I started last January uh, July <laughs> those other all those Jane months started last July and it's really helped me with my focus lately. But I think for the sake of consistency, I'm going to take... I should be running back to the stream. I may continue to write... I may do some co-working streams. I may do some visual novel streams. But I'm neither streaming nor podcasting now. And so I, I, took, I took the podcast off the stream and now I'm not doing either. So I think... I know what I need to do if I want to remain consistent, and I do. And also, I've remembered, I've had bad days where y'all have 
just the fact that I had to stream a show because y'all were waiting on me got me streaming and making content and you guys helped me with the like what I should talk about just by asking questions and you know when I'm low energy or don't have any ideas that helps a lot so I don't know how chatty I will be and I really hope I can change whatever the hell's going on with my computer but when I get back probably when I get home from taking the kid to college I will get back on regular podcasting and streaming my streaming schedule I may continue to stream in August I just can't promise how often or consistent it'll be if I see I, I think my problem is I feel weird playing during playing a game during the day but I don't really do much at night so I could choose a night to uh, do a gaming stream and then as I said raid into kids are asleep who is very, very good at being consistent with her streaming. Everybody follow the kids are asleep if you like watching awesome games and fun commentary at 9pm Eastern Time. I do want to be adding more entertaining content, extra content, for people who are supporting via um, Patreon or Substack. You can also subscribe during, via Substack now. And so I, that may take some planning on my part, and y'all know how good I am at that. But planning on, um, like, doing a full interview with somebody and then adding on, like, another couple of minutes just for Patreon supporters, that's one thing I might do. But if you're watching live, you'll get to see it all. You can see it all for free. But as I said, tomorrow is I Should Be Writing's 18th anniversary, and I'm just still baffled that it is a thing that I made it this far and I'm still having stuff to talk about. I think it's possibly because all my inner demons aren't gone yet. I think, I feel like the best we can do is acknowledge that the demons are going to be there and just be like, okay, demon, I know you're there, but you don't mean as much as you think you do. I still know you're there, but you're not as important as you think you are. I'm still looking for that ability to put my feelings aside and get to work. Because I know, I know for a fact that I'll usually be fine. Okay, you don't feel like writing today. Okay, well, too bad. We're going to go, we're going to sit down, we're going to turn off the distractions, and we're going to write. It's that step of turning off the distractions that, 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 that is the challenge. But I had a very short honeymoon period with an idea last week where I had an idea and I went, oh my god, this is so cool, I have to put this in my book. And it took about three hours until I thought of it later and I'm like, oh my god, that was stupid. What was I thinking? I'm not gonna do that. That's ridiculous. Three hours. Three hours I felt good. <laughs> but then when I started writing uh, yesterday, I put that, I started working on some of that content just to see if it'll work. Because my, my emotions are not reality. They're valid the feelings there, but they don't... When my emotions say, I suck, this book sucks, nobody wants to hear my podcast, nobody wants to watch my stream, that is... that that's all emotional crap that's not based on fact. Which means I can say, this book sucks, I suck, the stream sucks, the podcast sucks, podcasting has moved on without me, I'm just make garbage content. I can say all those things, and then get to work. So this is just a chill 
stream, we're going to go to, if you're listening to the recording, we're going to go on to the interview with uh, Wally Talabi, the author of Shigidi and the Brasshead of Obalufon. I'm holding it up to the camera now. There will be pictures and links in the show notes. It is a, a heist book. The people doing the heist are a minor god and a succubus. And they're pulling a heist at the British Museum. I mean, if that doesn't sell it for you, then really, I don't know what's wrong with you. Because <laughs> I love heist things. So um, we'll be talking to him at the interview shortly. Welcome back to I Should Be Writing. I am delighted to have on the show today author Wole Talabi, author of Shigiri and the Brass Head of Abalafon. Wole, I'm just so delighted to have you on the show because I'm, I'm aware of your short fiction um, for a while now, and you've gotten some awesome accolades. And so it's del- I'm just so happy to have you. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Shigiri. Right. So Shigidi and the Brass Head of Obalifon is my first novel. Um, and I like to think it's, it's, it's the fun novel that was waiting to come out of me, right? Because, um, most of my short fiction leans, I do both fancy and science fiction, but I do lean more towards science fiction. I, I like a certain kind of science fiction. I like it a bit philosophical. Mm. Uh, with uh with Shigidi and the brass head of a Balifon, what I really wanted to do was write a novel that used elements of things that were in my head um and just use it to tell a fun, enjoyable story. So the book basically to give a quick summary, it is about uh, a nightmare god who works in the Yoruba Pantheon. So the Yoruba is uh, my tribe of people from um, Western Nigeria. <clears throat> and in our mythology, you have lots of gods and uh, really interesting deities. And I kind of reimagined them as this corporate entity. Um, and Shigidi is an, is the god of nightmares. Who is, he's considered a minor god. So basically, he's like a menial worker in the company. And basically, all of them need to work to generate faith and belief so that they can keep surviving. Because if people stop believing in you, then the company can't run. And then you die. Um, so he does not like his job um, because the Shigidi in Yoruba mythology is typically depicted as being really short and ugly, you know, typically made of clay or wood, mm-hmm. which is how he starts off in the book. And then basically one day he meets a succubus, who's kind of a succubus, but a reimagined succubus as well, um, who's very ancient. And she makes him a deal. Right to transform him into something else, and he so he can leave the company. And of course, he decides to do that, and that sets off a whole chain of events with lots of the older elder gods in the company who have their own plans for Shigidi, and they are not all aligned or good. Um, and this basically starts this whole globe-trotting adventure from Asia to Europe, where they have to basically do things here and there to survive and eventually end up having to conduct a supernatural heist at the British Museum. You know, heist at the British Museum are just like, you can't go wrong, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
I've been to the British Museum several times and the last time I was there, I saw a few, there are a few items in there that I really wanted to like take with me, um, including the brass head of a balafon, which mm-hmm. is usually, it's a real object, by the way. I'm not sure if everybody knows that. Um, it's an actual object. It's usually called the bronze head of Ife, but it's not actually bronze. That was a mislabeling. Um from the early days, it's more of a brass alloy. These days, you just call it a brass, mm-hmm. brassy alloy. Um, so, yeah, I it's I I felt the urge to want to conduct a heist, so I I just decided to write it into the novel. <laughs> yeah, I think more heist should be against the British Museum um, for many many things that they claim they own. But anyway, um, so one thing that really I I'm starting to get this feeling of things that that kind of separate uh, beginning writers from prose is beginning writers may throw a bunch of excitement and violence in the first scene, thinking that that will grab the reader. And that's not what does it. But you throw a bunch of exciting stuff that does grab the reader. Can you tell me like what do you feel the difference is in a scene that starts with a lot of action and uh, possible injury, as in the case of your book, um, and people who want to write that but just seem, can't seem to grab the reader? Right. I I think um, I, I I favor starting with a bit of action. Um and like you said, that's something a lot of beginning re- uh, writers would do because maybe they've they've seen other people do it. But I think the heart of it is to link the action with the character, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like a lot of in the first in the opening scene of my novel, um, it opens in the middle of a chase scene, right? Um, which we return to later in the book. But I like to think that in that scene, you meet most of the main characters you get a clear sense of, you know, the relationship dynamics, um, at least the key element of the relationship dynamics between them and the sense of character, like who they are, what, you know, um, what they're interested in, what, what motivates them, what they care about, essentially. I think that has to be woven into the action. And this is something that took me a while to learn as well, um, that, you can't just have stuff happening. The stuff has to mean something. Um, and that's, I think, judging by the feedback, I think my opening chapter works as an effective hook. And I, I feel like if I had just described the chase without linking it to the relationship specifically between Shigidi and Noma and how that's kind of coming to the fore in the middle of this high tension situation, if I just written, oh yeah, there's a chase and there's this happening and there's this in the sky and all that, it would be superficially interesting, but maybe not really a good hook. Yeah, but your your, your hook is done in the first sentence, and yes. that is that is master. <laughs> can I read it? Can I read it? Yes, please. Okay, good. So there he was, barely conscious in the back of a black cab being driven down the Haymarket Road on the spirit side of London by a man who died 70 years ago when Neoma finally told Shigiri that she loved him. <laughs> I mean, there's like, there's so many questions. It's, and I feel like the beginning of a book needs to make the reader ask questions 
that they trust you will answer. And yes. so we've got like, we've got the, the, the man who died 70 years ago, the why is the love story happening? Why is she finally saying she loves him when he's, it really looks like almost the end of a story here because you don't know what's yeah. going to happen. And so I just, I've just become really interested in first, even sentences like this that just managed to grab you and don't let you go. So um, can I ask how many drafts it took you to get to that <laughs> gem of an opening sentence? But I was I was going to tell you even if you even if you didn't ask because quite literally zero. It wow. was the first line. It was the first. Well, okay. When I decided I was going to write a novel um, about this story, that was actually the first line that I wrote. That was mm -hmm. and I didn't really and it never changed that much. There's like small revisions, but overall that was the shape of the sentence from the beginning. So it kind of popped into my head like, like if this is the story you're telling that's how you started um and in fact when i first started because i had written a few short stories um well two short stories featuring the characters of nama and shigidi before and some elements of those stories make it into the novel so that's why i don't want to say it was the first thing i wrote mm -hmm. but when i did decide i was going to tell this story um originally thinking it would be a novella yes that was the very first that was the very first line I wrote. And um, I'm not sure where it came from. I, I feel like perhaps because I had written a short story featuring these characters before, and I had been thinking about what I wanted the bigger... I always knew I wanted to come back to it. And I, in my mind, it was a novella. And I'd been thinking a lot about the story arc of what exactly was going to happen. So I knew how it was going to end. But I wanted to start it kind of at the end. Mm -hmm. um, or almost at the end. So, yeah, I I don't know. I guess I thought about it for... It had been stewing in my mind for a while before I finally sat down and wrote it. Right. Um, did really when did you realize you were going to write a novel about these characters? If you've already been playing with the characters and that concept for a while in short stories. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's actually a really clear point. Um it was at, actually, when I was at the British Museum for the last time I was there, uh, which was in 2018, I believe. Yes, 2018. Um, I was attending the Kane Prize ceremony because I was nominated for the Kane Prize for African Writing. Mm -hmm. and as part of the ceremony, they fly everyone into London. And wow. it's a whole very wonderful, yeah, it's a wonderful experience. You stay at a very nice hotel that's fairly close to Buckingham Palace, like wow. walking different. Very um, cool. Attended lots of, yes, very cool. We attended lots of really cool events. And one of the things we did was visit the British Museum. Um, I had been there before because I used to live in London uh, when I was a graduate student. So it was very, it was a different way of coming back. You know, when, you, when you're a student, you don't really have that much money. So yeah. London is all about like saving money, taking the night bus, minimizing everything as opposed to coming as an invited guest where you're like going everywhere by taxi and mm -hmm. everything is nice. Um, so at the museum, I was, um, I was there and I went with some of the fellow nominees and we went to the African galleries, um, the Salisbury African galleries and looking around, um, there's a scene in the novel towards about three quarters of the way in, I think 
where Shigidi and Noma are in the British Museum and going through. And there's some sentiments that Shigidi expresses, like feelings about like seeing things being displayed there and just feeling like they don't belong there. Right. That was that's directly lifted from how I felt. That was my emotional state being there because while I love museums, um, I've been going to them. My parents used to take me to local museums in Nigeria growing up. So I love museums, but I I think there is something fundamentally wrong about putting something up for display, even if it's educational. If the people to whom that thing belongs morally, ethically, historically, culturally, don't agree with it, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's almost like displaying a prisoner, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, so that was the that was kind of the feeling I had, and it was like after leaving that a few days after leaving the museum is where I kind of decided that yes, we're doing the heist. I'd always known I was going to Shigidi and Noma were already together. So the first story I had written was about Noma just doing her thing as a succubus. And then the second story I had written was a story about Shigidi and I had brought Noma in where they kind of meet each other. Um, And I always knew I wanted to do a third story with them kind of going off together on this bigger adventure. And it was a few days after visiting the British Museum, I was like, yes, that is exactly what they do. I study British Museum. Um, you don't have to give me links or anything, but are these are these previous stories online that I can find and link to for the uh, listeners? Uh, one of them is online. Yes, there's a story called I Shigidi um, on Abyss and Apex. Okay, <clears throat> so that's available to read for free online. The other okay. story is just called Noma. It's the name of the co-protagonist of the novel. And um, that is in my first collection of stories called Incomplete Solutions. Um, I don't think it's anywhere online. So, yeah. Okay. I'll try to find links to as many as I can. Do you think you would have... I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. I'm sorry. Um, I think a lot of people wonder if they need to write vignettes or uh, character studies or short stories before they get started on a novel just to get to know the characters. Do you recommend that path that you took or do you think you're, uh, or if you're working on a next novel, is it going to be led up to in the same way? Are you going to start cold or how do you, I guess, how do you feel about this path that you took towards this book? Cause it's, it's interesting. Um, that's a great question actually, because I think some of it depends on the book um, and what the story itself really is. Um, I do think there is something helpful about doing a short story as a, almost like a pilot project or trial run to get the voice of the character, to get the, you know, tone of the story, Um, maybe try one or two different ones and then see um what you think will work better for a longer form what how you enjoy writing the characters um i think having those two previous short stories as a kind of like framework to build up from helped a lot and in fact the second story aishigidi a lot of those events 
basically that that story is folded back into the novel. It's broken up and expanded, but it's mostly in the novel. Um, so I can see the advantage of that. The thing is, for my second novel, which I've been working on maybe even longer than Shigidi and the Brasshead of Obalufan, I'm not doing that at all. I've, this is a story that I never really wrote uh, short stories around or anything. It's just something I've been thinking about for a really long time. And uh, I've just been enjoying writing it. I also think it depends where you are in your journey. Like for a long time, I I used to say and complain to like my fellow authors and friends. Like, I don't know if you know Tade Thompson, but he's heard mm -hmm. me. He's heard me complain so many times about like, I don't like writing long form. Mm -hmm. I love short stories. Um, so I, at some point, I think I had emailed him and told him, I'm, I don't think I'm ever doing a novel. I'm just going to write short stories and novelettes, maybe. And that's it. And he was like, sure, you can. That's a choice you can make. But don't don't do it because you think you can't do it because you don't want to. Right. Um, if you choose not to write a long okay. form. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And then, um, so, yeah, I think at that stage, I was enjoying myself more and I felt more confident writing short stories. So I feel like that was a good buildup um, to, to this novel. And now I, I've kind of convinced myself that I can write long form because I've done novellas and now a whole novel. And I've, in fact, in the last four or five years, I've, you know, written more novellas than um, in the previous 10 years. Oh, right? wow. Um, yeah, well, I had only written one before and I've done three since. So <laughs> That's still more. Yes, it's 300% increase. I'll, yes. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, well, 200%. But, um, I, I, I think it depends. If, if, if you're, if you're an author that's fairly confident in your ability to write long form and you're enjoying like you start the story and you're enjoying it, then just keep going. But I guess if you stall out, and this is something I've been thinking about for my second novel, because I do feel like I'm stalling out a little bit in the, you know, at the 35, 40% mark, I might actually pause and write a few short stories set in that world just to kind of reorient myself. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's a few dependencies there, but, I, at least for Shigidi, it worked. Writing short stories before worked and they helped. So I will not, you know, push back against that approach because it worked for me. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, one thing we talk about a lot on this show is balancing your everyday life with your writing life. And you are an engineer. And yes. I know a lot of, a lot of the listeners are, have more technical jobs during the day and write during the night. How do you, how do you balance that in terms of mental energy and I guess mainly mental energy. Some people could say using yeah. different sides of their brain makes it easier. And some people say, if you think so hard about science all day, you don't want to write about fantasy at night or how do you balance that? It's a great question. And it's a bit funny because I was at the office today and 
my friends at work, they were like, how do you balance, you know, like all the different engineering stuff and then you go home and you write like fiction. Yeah. All right. Like, oh, do you have like three compartments in your brain or something? I was like, no, it's it's the same. It's the same creative brain. Um, I think the way I kind of balance it is I, I need to take breaks in between tasks. Um, and for me, writing is a kind of task. So I've, I've figured I cannot just jump from one to the other. Um, in general, my, my approach is, um, I struggle to write at night. So I usually write first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried both ways. I, tr- I used to be a morning writer, then I switched to night and now I've come all the way back to writing in the morning. It's by far the most efficient for me. So I usually wake up quite early, write for a few hours somewhere in the middle, take a 15 minute break, come back to it. And then once I'm done, I'm done writing for the day. Right. And I need to reset and like get mental energy for, to move on to work mode. And usually what's a good break for me is to do some exercise. So I usually go for a walk, sometimes go for a run, or if I can make it to the gym or something for, you know, an hour maybe. And that's like a clean break between the writing and the work. There's the, gym stuff and I, that's usually when I maybe listen to a podcast or just listen to music and when I come back it's like okay now work so that approach works for me um, I think in terms of helping to manage the thought processes between switching from writing to engineering mode basically but I I will say the they're different in terms of the kind of focus that I use, but the the overall energy is the same, which is at the beginning when I'm writing, right? There's kind of two ways I write. There's the raw writing where I'm writing the first draft and I'm just going through what's in my mind. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like free form. I actually, I don't ask myself too many questions. If I feel like writing something, I just put it in. And if it doesn't work, we'll change it later. Um and even at work, I take the same approach as well. If it's a new problem and we're trying to figure out a solution, then I also don't edit myself. Um, I also just throw ideas out. In fact, I tell people sometimes like, okay, we're just, it's like brainstorming. Yes, just throw all your random ideas at me. Mm-hmm. I want bad ideas, right? Like give me the bad ideas too. And somewhere we'll take everything and then we edit it. So it's kind of almost the same approach. Um, it, I guess it's creative in a different way, but being able to separate the, the tasks helps do both more efficiently, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I think a lot of people just try to figure out how to fit all that in, both on a time management and on a mental energy management um, scenario. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I think the the time management, especially time management, I think helps with the mental management for me. Mm. And um, I think it also just helps to like set. I always have very modest writing goals. Um, like my my writing goal in the morning, usually I don't really track word count or anything. My goal is if I say I'm going to write for one and a half hours, I sit in front of the computer for one and a half hours. That's it. If I write a hundred words, I write a hundred words. If I write a thousand, that's great too. But I don't try to like put pressure. Um, 
especially when I'm, you know, drafting. Mm-hmm. I just let it come freely. Do you have trouble with distractions on the computer or phone or anything? Oof. Uh, there can be. There can be. But I, I think writing early in the morning helps. Mm, true. It's, I feel like doing it at night would be would be harder because there's usually more distractions at night. But for me, for example, I typically wake up at like 5 a.m. So it's just, you know. Yeah. And there's not much else going on. So I can focus until about 7 a.m. when things start to come alive. Right. Yeah, I, I I appreciate that about the early morning, but I don't I, I haven't been able to get up earlier than seven on a regular basis, so <laughs> that's still a bit of a struggle for me. Um, it's not easy. <clears throat> yeah, what do you? Uh, speaking of struggles, what do you struggle with? I feel like all of us have some aspect of fiction that we find harder than others. Um, what is yours, and how do you handle it? Hmm. I think the thing I struggle with most is um, multiple scenes with multiple characters, right? More than, I'd say four or five is kind of where it starts to get difficult. Two, I can, I'm very comfortable writing stories with, you know, interactions between two characters, three Four, but once we have once we have about five characters all interacting together in one scene, I've realized that I, those tend to be harder for me to write. They take me more time to arrive at you know how to switch between what each person is saying, but maintain like a clear point of view. Like there, sh- there should mm-hmm. be one clear point of view that all these are coming through. But then you also want each of their personalities to come through and be able to describe the scene visualize everything so it's um yeah those those kinds of scenes i think just based on observation they tend to take me longer mm-hmm. uh, right what do you find easy <laughs> oh the exact opposite of that it's you know the there's a term for this i don't i don't remember what it is but i think it's like the classic um two people in a room scene oh okay the bottle scene yeah, yeah, I think that's I more television. Yeah, that's a television. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but there's just that stripped down. It's just two people in a room discussing or, you know, in the middle of some action or fighting or, you know, playing, whatever it is, that direct two-person interaction. I find those really, really easy to write and fun Mm -hmm. to write i I really just enjoy them um i also really like action scenes which i mean i open my novel yes exactly (laughs) yeah Um, and i i think it's probably just because i for a long time during my teenage years i kind of cycle um initially i wanted to be a writer like i loved books i used to read a lot when i was young and i think when i got to about age somewhere between 11 and 13 let's say 12 it's a good medium. I kind of switched and I wanted to be a film director. Oh. Um, and I grew up watching a lot of Hong Kong cinema, a um, lot of action cinema. Yeah. Um, so I, I really just thoroughly enjoyed that. And I, for a long time, my, my dream, I think up until I was about 18, 19, 
I had this clear idea that I would graduate as an engineer, work for, you know, 25, 30 years, save up a lot of money, use significant amount of that money to fund my own independent film, you know, and then do all the film festivals and circuits mm -hmm. and become this big movie director in, in the second act of my, of my life after, you know, retiring early from engineering. And then in my early 20s, that changed from wanting to be a director to back to my original dream of being a, a writer. But I think the, the residue is still there of all those cinematic influences, especially Asian action cinema, which is something I, I watch way too much of as a child. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I think maybe I also kind of write a bit like I'm writing movie scenes. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to visualize a lot, like almost like a mental storyboard of like, okay, this is what happens. This is where everybody is. This is what everything looks like. Yeah, your scenes are very happens. clear. Okay, that's, yeah. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad about that because I try. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I struggle with, so I always really appreciate it when somebody else does it seemingly effortlessly. I don't know how many drafts it took, but it just really it, it lands really well. Awesome. Yeah, it did. I mean, the whole novel, the novel as a whole took a few drafts, but for sure the action scenes, I think maybe I revised those two, three times. It was mm -hmm. mostly, you know, dialogue and a few other things here and there that had to, we had to work on multiple iterations. Um, so when I decided to write a mystery, I realized I had to dive in and learn mystery tropes and things like that. That's kind of, I did it backwards, but it, it worked out okay. And when you say heist, my first thought is how much, heists are so intricate. And so what did you do to research for a proper heist? Did you read heist books? Did you watch heist movies? What did you do? Oh, this is a great question. Yes, uh, the answer is option B. I watched a lot of heist movies. Mm -hmm. Well, technically, I should say I rewatched that. I rewatched them because I also love I love heist movies. So I've seen, you know, a lot of the classic heist movies: Out of Sight, Rafiki, you know, Heat. All this, um, almost every variant of heist movie I've probably seen. Um, and there were a few things that I. I knew about the sensibility of a heist um, story, right? At least cinematically what it should be like. Like you need a getaway driver. So mm -hmm. in the book, I do have a getaway driver. You need like the the muscle, but you also need the brains and even Chigidi kind of is the muscle and Noma is kind of the brains. Um, and you kind of need that crew, but I wanted to keep the crew small because as I said, I struggle a bit with too many characters. Mm -hmm. So it's like, keep it small to about three. Um, so essentially what I did was rewatched a lot of heist movies to remind myself of the core sensibility of what made a good heist story. And then I made a conscious decision to invert it a little bit because generally speaking, heists work based on tension. Um, a lot of the time you have these big planning scenes. Well, there's almost two kinds, um, if we're going generally speaking. But the most common one is there's a lot of planning, 
you follow the crew as they're getting what they need, as they're planning out everything. And then they get into the heist and they start and you're just, you almost have like this mental map in your head. So they need to do A, B, C, D, E in this time frame. If not, it doesn't work. And so you're kind of tracking that and you're holding your breath to see, okay, ah, they passed the first checkpoint. Okay, next one's coming. Next one's coming. What if, and something always goes wrong. Mm-hmm, definitely. Something always goes wrong and they need to work their way around it and then um, make it to, to the point. So what I kind of consciously decided I was going to do with this heist is something goes wrong and then something else goes wrong mm-hmm. and then something else goes wrong. And then something else goes wrong and stuff just keeps going wrong all the way till the end. Um, so I think there's about three or four things that go wrong um, during the heist. And they're just having to, it just becomes this kind of madcap race um, to just try to survive. So that was one choice. I, just because I, I thought it, it made it more interesting. Um, but definitely having an awareness of heist movies, the general shape of a heist story, um, and by rewatching all those movies, reminding myself of it, that that definitely made a big impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and helped, and it helped me a lot when I was writing the the back half of the novel, which is mostly focused on the heist itself. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I I feel like a lot of writing instructors don't talk a lot about are I guess what I call like personal conflict and and story conflict and one thing that I love about heist movies uh in particular actually is that everybody's got their own reason for being involved with the heist and they may not always agree on why they're doing it even if they're all going for the same goal so that that builds more conflict and builds more tension um and my one of my weaknesses is pretty much at the beginning, all my people are friendly. They all like each other. They're all happy. It's like, okay, we're all going to get together. We're going to do this thing. And there's a conflict out there. But between us, we're all just friends. And and then I start yelling at myself. And then I remember that first drafts are allowed to be garbage. And so I start putting in more intricate characterization and motivations like in later drafts, which makes the ultimate conflict richer but yeah. i want to know how you approach that well i think um without giving away too much oh yeah don't don't spoil story work. yeah yeah no 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 spoilers um right from the beginning i i wanted to have an ongoing conflict between the three main you know car- characters involved in this heist um which is we do have Shigidi and Noma, who are basically a couple, but they're like a new couple. And they the way they become a couple is not, it's very hasty. Um, it's very messy. They basically start off, it's, it's almost the enemies to lovers trope. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all happens in one night. Um, so that kind of has some inbuilt, tension as well because it's almost like you go out you meet someone you have a great time you make an impulsive decision like yeah you know what we should be together we're we're a couple now and you're like yes of course and then you go home and you sleep together and you you wake up the next morning you're like okay now we actually need to live (laughs) 
like figure out each person's work schedule mm-hmm. and do I like sleeping next to this person and how are they going to do this? Like you need to figure it out. So this is kind of that phase. Um, a lot of this book kind of follows that phase of Shigide and Mama smashed together. Like they have this big explosive romance, so to speak, and now they're working out the kinks. And then the third character who becomes their getaway driver essentially has history with Norma. So it's almost like a love triangle. Um, and that's kind of how I had set it up in my mind initially. Now, some elements of the love triangle kind of got toned down as I was working through the story, um, just to give more focus, but it's still there. So I had that tension inbuilt between the three characters from the beginning. Um, I guess I, it's something I like to have. Usually I, I tend to, I noticed I tend to think about stories a lot before I actually start writing them. So I usually have several weeks or sometimes months, in some cases years, where mm-hmm. I just think about the story, but I don't even write a single word of it. And by the time I come to it, I usually, I usually have a clear sense of, you know, main character beats and kind of where I want each um, each character arc to end up, and usually that involves a bit of a bit of tension uh, and conflict, character conflict. Do you ever have your character conflict slash arcs uh, work against what you have ultimately planned for the story? Ooh, that's a great question. I I think. Hmm. Not none of nothing is immediately coming to mind, um, but I'm fairly certain it's happened at least once, where I I was thinking of a certain character conflict, and then halfway through realized that yeah, that doesn't work with the larger theme of the story, the mm-hmm. larger conflict of the story. Yeah, I feel like it's happened once, but I don't remember when. Um, might have been a while ago. And I, I I think for that, yeah, if something like that happens, those that's usually where I would take a break from the story. Mm. Um, I'd probably pause it for a bit and um think a bit more, right? right. I, I like the I like the keeping things in my head for a while approach and then coming back when I have a clear sense of direction. And then I, once I have that sense of direction, it's just about getting the words on the page at a steady pace every day. Um, so, yeah. Should check. That's that's a good question. We need to see when that's happened before. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a rough thing. I sometimes run into that and always wonder how other people handle it because I'm not sure if I <laughs> handle it properly myself. Um, so who are you reading right now that you're excited about? Ooh. You just have all the best questions. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Am I reading that I'm excited about? Mm -hmm. I like that because it's really specific. Um, I'm currently reading, well, I just finished reading two books and I'm currently reading a third one. The third one is an old book. It's, um, It's called Far Horizons. It was an anthology edited by Robert Silverberg. I think it came out in the 80s or early 90s. Um, And I just have a lot of classic science fiction books that I 
have a bad habit of just picking up whenever I see them. Uh, that's not a that's bad habit. Of, I don't think that's well, bad at all. I describe anything that I, I do almost compulsively as a bad habit mm. because that's kind of how I got into books was back in Nigeria growing up, we didn't really have like, well, I never went to a big fancy bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, you would always go to this, these uh, secondhand bookstores or in some cases it was just literally a guy with a bag. There would be a guy with a bag walking on the street with a bell, ringing the bell and shouting books, books, books. And he would get to a place, put the put the bag down, put all the books out on the ground. And you just walk by and if you see something you like, you pick it up. And they were always like the trade paperbacks, mm-hmm. secondhand books. So those were, that's, that's a lot of what I read. So now whenever I see any of those secondhand bookstores, it just triggers. It's like that um, Pavlovian reaction, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, yes, I'm a child again, and I need to, t- I need to grab one. Like classic science fiction, secondhand paperback. I need to have one. So that's where I picked that up, and I'm finally getting to getting around to read it. It has Nancy Cress, it has um, Ursula K. Le Guin, it has Dan Simmons. So it's it's not a bad. No, clearly. Um, I'm enjoying it, but. The one that I'm excited about is uh, it's a book I just finished, which is a book by a new newer author, um, Timmy O. It's called uh, More Perfect. And I actually wrote a review for it for Locus. Um, it was a great book. I really enjoyed it. I think it's one of the best books I've read so far this year. I think um, I saw an interview with both you and her, right? Interview? I think so. No. No? No, I don't think they've done an interview together. Hmm. Um, okay. Sorry about that. Continue. No. Yeah. But um, it has really interesting themes about, especially, it's one of those things that uh, I feel, sometimes you read a book and you feel like, oh, this is something I could have written. Mm-hmm. It's a topic that I'm very interested in. So it basically um, follows, it's set in London in the future where there's this technology called the Pulse that allows people directly connect to something like the internet, but, you know, raise to power too. And from there, that's where the book starts, but then it goes much further to discuss ways that you can manipulate consciousness and dreams and things like that. Oh, yeah. And... Do, these are all things I love. Like even my short story, the one currently nominated for the Hugo, is literally about that, right? Like recording human consciousness. I totally um, should have led with that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna record now. Hugo finalist. There, there, we got that in there. I'm sorry. Yes, you're you're the 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 story you're nominated for also deals with consciousness. The nature of consciousness. Right. Yes, and Temio's story does that as well. Um, but it's also, it's, it's a retelling of a Greek myth, um, which I love myths. Mm-hmm. Um, my, like my novel also contains a lot of Nigerian mythology. Um, she also uses a bit of Nigerian mythology, a lot of Greek mythology to tell this science fictional story that, you know, features young people. And there's, it's a bit of a tragic love story because, you know, Greek chat, Greek tragedy. Um, but yeah, I just, I think it's a very, and it's, 
it's written in this really lovely prose that's just really enjoyable to read. So yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's something I was excited to read. Um, and I'm really happy I got to read it. So that's probably the most recent thing I, I read that I'm excited about. Yeah, I realize I've got um, her 19, uh, 2019 book on my wish list, the oh, yeah. Do, you, Do You Dream of Terra 2. So I've, oh, I'm excited about that one. And yes, actually, you were on stage with her three years ago, which oh, is yes. the interview I yes. found. At the, at, at the Akia Festival, mm-hmm. yes, that's his trip in 2019. Yes. Now I remember yes. Yeah. Okay, I, I was thinking you meant like they're written in. Oh no, I'm sorry. I was just like watching that interview and seeing, recognize the name. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed. In. I enjoyed the uh, do we dream, do you dream of terror too, as well. It's quite interesting. I I do think more perfect is a more accomplished book. I would say <laughs> your um, word choice is so wonderful. <laughs> that's great it, it, it just it feels like it's aiming higher mm-hmm. and and it mostly delivers so well, the goal maybe is- it's just because yeah go ahead i'll just maybe it's because it's, it's a topic that i'm personally mm-hmm. very interested in, so i'm i might be biased right well we're all biased with our own personal preferences but uh yeah you know we all want to grow as writers so i think according to you that's growing in the right direction so I think so. I yeah. think so. Um, what are you working on right now? If you can tell us anything. I I think I can. Um, so right now I am finishing up um, edits for my second collection of short fiction, which is coming out next year. Um, it will be called Convergence Problems. So... Um, I put the collection together. It contains a brand new novella, some new short stories, some previously published short stories, some rewritten short stories. So I'm just finalizing the edits on that. And at the same time, I'm also working on a new novella, um, which is actually part of a bigger project. Um, so this novella is set in what we call the Southiverse. And uh, Saudi is the name of a writing collective that I belong to. Oh, cool. Uh, yes. And the collective, actually, we have an anthology um, coming out because we it's a collective of African um, speculative fiction authors. And we, we've basically been meeting since, you know, early last year, um, twice a month to basically build this fictional world. It's a secondary world, science fantasy, secondary science fantasy world. Um, And we basically built it from the ground up. It's a binary star system with five planets and each planet has different cultures. And the whole idea was to infuse as much variety of African concepts and philosophies and culture and, you know, all of that into the world and have this very Afrocentric secondary world that's a sandbox that all of us can tell stories in. So we've built the world and we have an anthology coming out in November of this year, which is called Mother Sound, the Southiverse anthology. Um, I edited it, so I do not have a story in it. I've I've written the introductions to all the stories just mm-hmm. to kind of tie tie the whole thing together, but 
Um, I'm also writing my own story set in that world, which is a novella. That's the one I'm currently trying to finish up. And then after that, I will be working on my second novel. Um, well, I have been working on my second novel for quite a while. I keep going off and on, taking months off it and then coming back. Um, can't really say too many details yet because it's nope, still I understand. at an early stage. But yes, I'm, I continue to work on it. And uh, hopefully maybe maybe a sequel to Shigidi. Mm-hmm. I, have an, I have an idea already. Um, but we'll see how that sure. goes. Yeah. But uh, for now, yeah. Can we go back to the collective question? Um, oh, yeah. I love that idea, and it's something I've dabbled with in podcasting with, but we were mostly doing self-publishing things, and one person owned the world. Um, but if you're all working together as a collective, how does that work with IP? Like, if if how how is that going to handle... Do you guys have something in place for that? Because that's kind of important and can ruin friendships if you don't. Yes. And yeah, so we took quite a bit of time setting up that aspect of things. Um, essentially, the way it works and the way we've set it up is um, we've split the IP into two parts. Um, so there is IP for the world, and then there's IP for the stories. Mm. And the IP for the world, which is basically the setting, um, that belongs to the core members of the collective, equal equally shared, right? So we basically, whenever anyone writes a story in that world, they basically kind of they they need they need to get permission from the collective. So they need to send in a pitch. They need to sign what we call a contributor agreement, which basically acknowledges that the world belongs to the collective and the collective has basically said, yes, you can tell a story in this world and the story belongs to you. You can sell that story, whatever else um, you want to do, you can do with the story, right? And if you, if you make more than a certain amount of money, so we have a threshold below which you don't need to give anything back to mm-hmm. the collective, but if you cross the threshold, then you give 10% back. Right, as kind of a licensing for sure. the, for the world. Um, so that's the way we've set it up, and we've had we've had lawyers review it. Um, everybody reads and signs the agreements. Um, so far, it seems to be working. In the anthology, we do have contributors as well as members of the collective. So not everybody is joining collective full time. Some people can just dabble, right? You sign the contributor agreement, write one story you're done. Um, so the whole idea behind the anthology was to kind of do a trial run, right? To pilot test this process of us creating the world, writing our stories, and then inviting contributors to do one-off stories as well, also set in the world. And then we we see if we can expand it. Because I would, I would really love for it to be open for basically any African author anywhere mm-hmm. in the world to come in, tell a story, you know, do well with it and, you know, only give back if they actually, if they're actually really successful. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a really great system. I love that. I think, I think so. I hope it works. Um, yeah. 
it's a bit of a unique approach and it's based on it's it's based on some interesting copyright law mm-hmm. uh, luckily one of the members of the collective is also a, is is a lawyer as well so we've had several revisions on it um, but gosh what what nation's copyright law are you following cuz that's there's just so many different places with different copyrights yeah so essentially the 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 core the base everything is based in the US okay and so will it be published yeah. in the US yes ooh exciting can i get you back this fall to to talk about it after it's out yes of course yeah. oh awesome in, uh, november or december yes i'd be i'd love to come back maybe not just me maybe i'll come with maybe we could do a two or three way conversation with one or one or two other members of the collective i i love that idea uh who else is in the collective um so there's Eugene Bacon who is a Tanzanian Australian um there's Stephen Embleton Darish Gunfalo um mostly yeah there's 10 of us um, okay yeah i'm not sure if you know any of them but yeah that's that's who is in the collective and then we have contributors um the contributors you might know we have uh, Tobias Tobias Buckel Oh yeah. Contributing, yeah. That's and very exciting. He wrote an awesome story. He was really excited to join the pro- the project from the beginning once Excellent. we announced it. He was messaging me like, "Yes, I love." <laughs> um we also have uh Oganechoe Ekweki Donald who is also contributing. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh Tendai Huchu or TL Huchu. Mm-hmm. Uh who's also contributing. So yeah, we have quite a decent group of people together and I'm hoping the anthology does well. Oh, that's going to be very exciting. Um, very cool. So give me your advice to new writers, if you have any. Oof. Okay. I will give my standard advice to all new writers. Mm-hmm. The only thing, the only thing that I can say for certain always helps with writing is to read a lot. Mm, yes. Uh, I I have noticed and I've met a few younger authors who when they start writing they stop reading because they basically shift the time. Right? All the mm, time they spend. Yeah. Um and I think you kind of have to consciously make time to keep reading um because it's the it's kind of one of the only ways to really learn different ways of doing things to get new ideas just to be inspired and to just keep enjoying stories right is to just keep reading and once you start writing i've noticed when i'm once i started writing i when i read i see things differently it's almost like to use a bad metaphor it's almost like you see another layer of the matrix mm-hmm. you know it's like i can see what this what this author is setting up now i'm not just going along with the story but I can see what they're trying to set up and if I still enjoy it even though I could see how they were setting it up then I know they did it well. Yeah. And I might go back and reread it because I'll be like I want to be able to do that. Like that worked yes. really really well. Yes. Um so I think yeah there's lots of writing advice out there there's so many things I've seen and for every single writing rule I think I've come across there's probably one that directly contradicts mm-hmm. 
Um, but the only one I've seen is if you read a lot, your chances of being a good writer go up. That I've never heard it said exactly like that. So that's really good. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. So th this might speak to my own self-esteem, but have you ever had the problem of reading something in the same genre that you're writing and the thing you're reading is so good it actually works against what you're working on? Because I was reading The Expanse when I was working on my first science fiction book and I just had to put it aside because I was so depressed. <laughs> I'm like, I can't write. It's not even the same story, but it was like, it was a space story with action and, and mine was not... I didn't think mine was as good, so I actually had to put that aside. I didn't stop reading, but that specific right. thing I had to step away from. Have you ever had that? Um, no, actually, I okay. don't think so. Um, I have, I have had the feeling of, um, you know, reading something that is executed so well and it's so good that you know you get that feeling of, oh, I, I can never be mm -hmm. this good. Um, but I think. It's almost inbuilt in my character. I feel my my wife says this all the time. I'm stubborn. I'm a really stubborn person. So in my head, the thought process kind of goes, "Oh, this is wonderful. I'll never be able to do something like this, but I can try." Ah, uh... and that's kind of just how my brain is. Okay, even if I don't get there, I can try. You know, um, and that's, that's where the stubbornness kicks in. I'm, I, I am perfectly willing to keep trying indefinitely. Mm -hmm. as, and as long as I'm making progress and I feel like I'm doing better and I'm learning, I'm doing more than I could before, even if I don't get there, at, if I'm upslope and I keep going upslope, I consider that a win, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I should thank my dad for instilling that in me when I was a child because uh -huh. he was always like, do not, don't give up. You can slow down. You can take a break. You can whatever you want to do, but do, do not give up. You can keep trying. You, on, you only lose when you stop trying. Great. So, stubbornness is another useful trait. Stubbornness is useful. <laughs> well, um, where can we find you online? And, uh, I'm assuming we can find Shigidi on all uh, many bookstores and online venues. Yes, wherever books are sold, there's a wonderful ebook that is um, that is also available for pre-order. So it's available in audio and hardcover. Paperback will be out soon. Uh, release date is August eighth in the U.S. and then it will roll out in different territories. Um, I think in September and then up until February next year to keep rolling um, from, but starting August 8th in the U.S. I'm available wherever books are sold and uh, you can find me online. I have a website called wtalabi.wordpress.com um, and all my social media stuff is also wtalabi. So on Twitter, I'm at WTalabi. Instagram, same. Mm -hmm. TikTok, which I just joined. Oh, boy. Also the same. We yes. should talk offline uh, about that. I'm still trying to figure that out. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> it's a strange place. Strange and wonderful place. Yes. 
Uh, well, well, I thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a delight talking to you, and you've given me a lot to think about, which I really appreciate. Thank you. Thank you, Mar. It's awesome talking with you. And uh, like I said, it was one of the first podcasts I listened to when I started listening to podcasts. So I'm happy to, to be on. Thank you. Well, we'll have can, you back. I can in... listen to myself. Yes, you can. <laughs> uh, we'll have you back in the fall to talk about the uh, anthology. Maybe we can get. Yes. Yes. We'll, we'll talk about other people to include as well. Um, but yeah, the book is uh, out. Well, it, it'll probably be out by the time this airs. So, and you'll have links in the, we'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. This has just been a little I should be writing meta cast of, of some thoughts. I can be found at Merverse.com. My socials, I don't know where I am these days. I tried to log on to Blue Sky on my phone yesterday. I couldn't log in. I went to Twitter. That was fun for a minute. Um, I need to get over myself and be comfortable doing TikTok. Because I actually have some good ideas for TikTok. Of course... As I said earlier in the stream, I don't know if that can be... The cool idea is adding on more work, and I don't know if I have the spoons to do that. But, uh, yeah, I'm at merverse.com, Mighty Mer on all the socials and Twitch. My Twitch schedule is going to be a little bit up in the air for a little while, because I have a book to do, and that is going to be my main priority. But I'll be around. If you follow, you might get a notification when I go live. I say might because I don't get notifications for most of the people I follow. Like, I'm lucky that for the kids are asleep, I just know when she's streaming. So, because you're very consistent, again. So, the fact that all my many devices don't tell me, well, I, that's okay. But other people, I miss. But anyway. Fussiness, depression... And imposter syndrome aside, I got a book to write because I should be writing. And so should you be. I Should Be Writing is available to you under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Theme music by John Anilio. Art by Numbers Ninja. Production by Summer Brooks. And hosting by Libsyn. Find all of this information and more at merverse.com. And remember, we can't do this without you. Thanks for your support. Doctor